Shoecast. Welcome one, welcome all to the Stitch Down Shoecast, where we talk quality footwear, how it's made, and all the things that we love about it. I'm Ben from stitchdown.com. Ticho is here, and we have a very exciting guest on today, Nicole Porter, the owner of Artisan Boot and Shoe in Western New York. Pretty jazzed to talk to Nicole today, but before we get to her, Ticho, I must ask, how are you doing? What are you wearing? And have you purchased Butter Boy Butter yet? I am doing excellent. Thank you for asking. I have purchased the butter. Yes. You know, we do uh, do a little charcuterie night here. I can never... Charcuterie? Charcuterie? I think it's charcuterie. I'm from New Jersey, man. I got I got to put like a cha-cha in, in like everything I say. It's not charred. It's raw. Maybe. But anyway, dude, I bought that butter. It was it was incredibly expensive. I mean, is it twenty dollars a pound? Oh my god! Yeah, twenty dollars a pound is the is the going rate for this stuff. It's just butter with a little sea salt on it. Why not just sprinkle some some sea salt on on my normal Kerrygold butter, which I do love. You know, I haven't been to the grocery store in like a year. Uh, not one of my pandemic responsibilities. I think you're missing something there. I believe that there's more to the Butter Boy. I have other wonderful butter recommendations for you, and I will make them next episode uh, after actually reviewing the butter in my fridge, which I'm suddenly wondering how much all of it costs. It sounds like to me you need to pivot from this footwear-based journalistic pursuit and maybe just do uh, butter. What's like the stitch down of butter? What is that called? Churn down? Butter up. Butter up. Oh, I like that. I think you also asked me what shoes I was wearing. I did ask. I've got my Alden Whiskey Shell Cordovan tanker boots from a former uh, wonderful shop in New York, City Shoes. I wore them really hard on on like a vacation, and they got super beat up, and I've got gotten them resold. One of my favorite pairs. Rocking them today just, you know, in support of uh, some USA manufacturing. Didn't have anything, you know, made in Western New York to wear on my feet, but I did have a snack that a good friend of mine sent me. Oh, you don't say. Oliver's Sponge Candy. So this stuff, you can hear me crinkling it to prove that it's really here. This is dark chocolate sponge candy. It's like a chocolate-covered something. I don't even know what this stuff is, man, but once I start munching on it, I cannot stop. I believe it's a, a honeycomb is how I tend to describe it. Made right in Batavia, home of artisan shoe and boot. And man, Nicole better like this stuff because I've got some in front of me too. Oh, yeah. Should we just eat sponge candy throughout this podcast? I only have two pieces, but yeah, probably. Oh, oh, the chocolate splintered. I went everywhere. Yeah, that does happen. I actually got a couple bars. They're maybe like, I don't know. They're pretty big, six or seven inches long. It's the same thing. And it's just one continuous piece of the sponge draped in chocolate. The chocolate chatter on those is pretty dangerous. You kind of have to like eat it with one hand and have another hand underneath you just to catch the scraps. Here's my recommendation to anyone interested in eating this. Eat it over the sink. Eat it over the sink would be my recommendation. Yeah, or a plate if you want to do some chocolate harvesting afterwards, which I recommend. I'm I'm good with losing it in the sink, but 
We'll uh, we'll talk to Nicole. We'll see if she knows somebody over at Oliver's uh, Sponge Candy Incorporated, and see if she can you know give him that that little tagline of uh, Oliver's Sponge Candy. Eat it over the sink. I think is a great <laughs> marketing uh, tagline for this stuff. Oh yeah, I think that's the breakthrough for them. So you haven't asked me, and I feel like you you haven't really been asking recently. I don't think that you're kind of interested in me anymore. Uh, which I understand. That's just how it goes, man. You know, you get deeper into a relationship and you just, you know, you kind of gloss over stuff like that. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please, Ben, what, pray tell, is on your piggy toes right now? Well, I am wearing my Parkhurst x Stitch Down Nighthawk Allen boots. And there's a wonderful blue, kind of gray, who even knows kudu, made in the Artisan Factory. Couldn't be happier to be wearing them today. I love those. I did. I remember I tried them on when I was uh, in your in your shoe dungeon there a couple months ago. Absolutely beautiful boots. Super, uh, super well made. There was no other option. So look, before we get rolling, we just wanted to give a loving shout out to our sponsor this week, Standard and Strange, who I've been working with on yet another blue collaboration boot. I just can't stop. Bit of a secret for now, but I can assure you it'll be pretty good and there'll be word soon. And with that, it's time to introduce our very wonderful guest, Nicole Porter, owner of Artisan Boot and Shoe in Batavia, New York. Nicole, welcome to the ShoeCast. How's everything? And perhaps the most important question, what are you wearing on your feet today? Hey, guys. I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. On my feet today are my factory sneakers. They're just a beat up old pair of Pumas. They've got paint on them, cement on them. They never leave this factory. Thank God nobody wants to see that outside of here. How long have they been running for? And like, do you tear through these things? Like what what happens to a shoe in working in a shoe factory? Um, Well, you would think that I make shoes so I would have nicer shoes. But I mean, these bad boys have probably six or seven different holes in them. If they last another four months, I'd be surprised. Just a lot of dripping, you know, cement all over the place a lot of wear and tear and they don't look great i can tell you that (laughs) (laughs) i promise what we make looks better than this well luckily it's a podcast pure audio (laughs) but look the life of a shoe in a shoe factory is kind of a fascinating thing like they come out beautiful but sacrifices must be made along the way to get there these truly are a sacrifice so look next very important question do you know about Oliver's candies and specifically their sponge candy. Um, so yes, that was a pleasant surprise. I thought when you sent the picture of your your setup that that was sponge candy, and I almost commented on it. <laughs> Good eye. Oliver's is just a mere maybe mile and a half away from the factory. They're just right around the corner. It's amazing. So had I known, I would have also indulged in some sponge candy with you. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll send you some. It'll be nice, affordable shipping. <laughs> My father-in-law and mother-in-law, but specifically my father-in-law, is really like right from that area. He's been eating this stuff his whole life, and his mom actually used to work in the Oliver's factory. Oh, really? That's cool. It's great. My wife's birthday is coming up, and her parents sent eight bags and I think 10 of those bars, and we really don't know what to do. (laughs) It's wonderful, but it is way too much. It freezes well. You just kind of keep it in the fridge or the freezer. But great stuff. Everybody support Oliver's. And I think that they would be totally open to your tagline, Ticho. I mean, I don't see any flaws in it. 
<laughs> you know, sometimes eating over the sink can be enjoyable. You know, it's like you get, have an extra slice of pizza. It's like, well, I'm not going to get a plate dirty for the slice of pizza. I'll just go eat it over the sink. Yeah, it tastes better when you know there's no mess to clean up. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Oliver's Candy, get at me to, uh, you know, license that, that tagline. It's not going to be cheap, but you know what? We could probably work out a trade for some candy. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. We'll work it out. Ticho, master negotiator. Look out for him. <laughs> so look, let's get into it. Nicole, you run Artisan, which has been around for about two and a half years now, I think. Tell us the whole story. Like, how did this happen? And we'll get into what's going on there. But what was the genesis of Artisan? I was working at PW Minor, which was a shoe factory here in Batavia. I'd been here for a little over 150 years. And in on several occasions, it was foreclosed on. But this last time in 2018, it kind of seemed like that was going to be the last time somebody swooped in to save PW Minor. So I kind of just got together this plan and decided that we were going to keep trying to do some Goodyear Welted stuff here in Batavia, um, just at a much, much smaller scale. So how big was PW Minor and kind of towards the end, 2017? And what's Artisan look like? Yeah, so uh, PW Minor, I want to say at the very end of it, there was probably about 85 to 90 people working here between the office and the factory. And now there is six in myself. So seven in total, it's a lot smaller. But honestly, I couldn't be happier. I think that who I have here, they put out like some really great quality shoes, most of the time pretty quickly. <laughs> and were most of those people PW Minor employees previously or where'd everybody come from? Yeah. So out of the six that are here now, only two of them didn't work at PW Minor. But originally when we had opened um, Artisan, there was nine people here. Um, some of them have retired within the past year, but they were all 100% of everybody that I had working here in the very beginning was people who worked at PW Minor. Got it. So PW Minor was there. There's a factory, there's a machinery, and all of a sudden there's Artisan. Was it actually that easy or what was required to, to get this thing up and running? Would you believe me if I said it was that easy? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, darn. Yeah. So at the end of PW Minor, they were actually talking about breaking up um, the factory. We were running two separate lines, the Goodyear Welt line and then Cemented Shoes, where we were mostly focusing on orthopedic. They talked about closing the Goodyear Welt line, so I actually had a head start. I didn't foresee PW Minor closing at any point, but I was already in the works of trying to buy up the assets of the Goodyear Welt line, and we were going to run simultaneously in the same building. Luckily, I had like a month head start before, you know, it all went to hell. But it kind of was easier than starting a shoe factory should be. <laughs> That's fine. All by chance. I mean, <laughs> when everything is here at your fingertips, that makes it so much easier than having to go out and acquire all the, the workers and the materials and the equipment. Hey, don't complain if you don't need to, certainly. Right. Yeah, so you, you know, you kind of have this opportunity to basically just take over this Goodyear welted line that they're basically shuttering. Was that the part of the business that you'd been kind of involved in before or was that kind of new to you? I didn't touch anything else. I only did Goodyear Welt. Honestly, I thought the whole other side of the factory was completely boring. I had zero interest in it. Why is that? <sighs> 
I mean, it's skillful. It's all very skillful, but there's just like a majestic feeling, if you will, to like seeing a whole Goodyear Voltage shoe come together. Like, it's just very cool to see it from the time it gets cut to the time, you know, it's being lasted where you don't have those things on the other side where we were doing the orthopedic, like the uppers were being stitched out of the house. So you were just putting them on a last and then sticking a sole on it. There wasn't really any excitement or room for error. I guess I like the thrill of messing a shoe up, maybe. Uh So yeah, everything that I did was on the Goodyear Vault side. I started in product development. Well, I actually started in returns, and that was miserable. People sent back some (laughs) really nasty shoes. (laughs) Wait, like what? What do you got? What do you got? There had been shoes, like I would open the box, and I would have to immediately close it and have somebody else do that pair because I would just be gagging. Like I would find somebody who had like no sense of smell and be like, hey, do you think this pair is actually our fault? Is it defective or did they just wear it somewhere they shouldn't have been? (laughs) I feel like if somebody returns a pair of shoes to you and you can smell like there it's not just like oh this smells like a new you know that new shoe smell that yeah is just so intoxicating i i'm smelling a boot right now as we as we're talking i feel like if it doesn't smell like that and it smells like somebody's rank feet i think that's just rejected right off the bat right (laughs) you would think you would hope it would have made my job so much easier i wouldn't even had to open those boxes (laughs) (laughs) okay so after you snuck out of the returns dungeon. Um, yeah, I was doing some like secretarial work and I was sitting in my office one day and I can hear in the next the next office over. My grandfather owned the business at the time and there was nobody managing private label. And he's yelling at somebody about, oh, well, somebody needs to take care of this. Somebody needs to be managing these accounts. And I had to sneak out of my office and I was like, oh, if he sees me, it's going to be me. Don't let him see you. Don't let him see you. Because <laughs> at this time, I had no experience with shoes. It was kind of just like figuring out where I wanted to be and where I wanted to be working. So I thought that this was just me passing through a shoe factory onto the next thing. And as soon as I stepped out of the door, he said, Nicole, will do it. And I said, great. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I will. <laughs> but it did get me out of returns. So that was nice. So what were you forced to do at that point then? I <laughs> against your will. I transitioned over to um a role in product development and I was managing any of our private label accounts, so all the communication um, with the customers and developing their product with our team, and then making sure we had, you know, materials in-house and things like that, which was much more thrilling than sitting in a room on the other side of the factory where no one ever walks, looking at shoes that people had worn for too long before sending back to me. Yeah, I'll buy that. (laughs) I will buy that. (laughs) And what about after that? About a year and a half, I think it was. Um, And then I transitioned into a role. I was the assistant plant manager for about six months before the factory had closed. And that is pretty much where I topped out before it all ended. Seems like a, you know, pretty good setup for what you're doing today. Yeah. Get a little taste of everything. For sure. And a little smell. (laughs) (laughs) Not sure if you're able to say all the different brands, but who's Artisan manufacturing for at this point? We have brands that are in and out of here based on just whatever they need, but we do a lot of production for Parkhurst, which you mentioned earlier, which he's been absolutely great and he's local. So it's cool. He's always, you know, popping in here. We're able to communicate about things um, quite frequently. We've done production orders for Wolverine with their Thousand Mile Boot and a couple of their collaborations with companies. Bostonian, which is owned by Clark's. 
We've done some orders for them. But right now we have like a ton of product development for all these people that are just popping up out of nowhere. I don't know where they came from. Um, I keep saying it's like everybody became a shoe designer during the shutdown. Everybody's going to have a shoe brand by the time uh, COVID is over. But it's really, it's super cool. And we're like the perfect setup for it. We're small so we can, you know, take on these different people and give them an opportunity to see something that they might not have been able to see come to fruition because the other factories require so much from them. So you mentioned the kind of new brand explosion when we talked on the phone a few weeks ago. What's that look like? Like, I I love it. Like, there's people in the U.S. who are like, I want to manufacture here and they're calling you. Yeah, which I don't know how. I don't <laughs> As you know, I was hard to get a hold of. <laughs> but yeah, I've had probably, geez, maybe five or six different people reach out to me. Some of them are, you know, they started out manufacturing or doing development out of the States. And when COVID hit, they just realized, like, we want to be doing this here in the States, um, keeping, you know, manufacturing or shoe manufacturing alive here. So um, it's kind of just, you know, Goodyear welted stuff boots, dress shoes. Um, we have somebody who's looking to make a flip-flop, which hmm. is totally out of my realm, but it's been like very exciting to dabble in that and see if we're, we're the right fit. But that's been a learning curve. Any new brands that we should be keeping our eyes out for that, that we might be interested in? The first one, I guess I should say, is this company called Caswell Bootmakers. He's out of D.C., but he is working on a dressier boot and then a chukka as well as a service boot. He's using a lot of like CF stud leather, which is one of my favorites. Um, we do a lot of that with Parkhurst, and it's just like a very unique. Every shoe is very unique. All Every pair looks different. So I'm excited to see what he what he comes through with. Oh, man, these things look pretty good. They got a little wingtip boot, snazzy chukka. All right, breaking boot news, unsurprisingly. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty interesting that, yeah, just a lot of, of new brands have been reaching out. Kind of how how does that process go? I mean, do people just reach out and say, hey, I want to make this specific pattern? Do people come to you with lasts already? Or are you just kind of fielding phone calls from people who are just kind of like, how do I do this? You know, what what's kind of the usual way this goes down so it's definitely a mixed bag every scenario that you just listed one way or another we've you know started with a customer a lot of the customers right now because they are kind of transitioning from somewhere out of the states into the states they already have a less that they were making or not even being out of the states but they're like just trying to find a factory so they've already started some kind of like sampling process i've only had a couple customers come to us without a last yet but they i mean very quickly had one developed but yeah, typically they just reach out and they say, hey, this is what I've got. This is what I'm looking for. Can you do it? Are you interested? What is it that you look for in one of these brands in terms of being someone that you do want to work with? So I'll be very honest with you. I am not picky. <laughs> um, only because I do like I don't want to be the one who's like. Let's call her. <laughs> Nicole, get off the podcast. We're going to call you about your brand. <laughs> Just because there's not a lot of opportunities to get into a factory in the States. Um, so I don't want to be the one who can take someone on. And I'm like, oh, you know what? You don't seem like you're really going anywhere. We're definitely open. But yeah, I try not to not give anybody a fair chance. A lot of times I compare it to Parker's. He's been amazing. He's been really great to work with. Um and I remember when he came to PW Minor to start developing and he was like, 
I work at a bank and it was just like a learning curve. And now I look at his business and I'm like, this could be anyone. Like if they're going to put in the time and the effort like Andrew did, then we could have the next Parkhurst in the making, which is really exciting. It's really cool that you're, you know, open to kind of anything. And I think that will probably bring a lot of people, probably a lot of people will listen to this and be like, yeah, I'm going to start a boot company. Let me fire off an email. But yeah, there's so many, so many factories. Yeah, I was actually, you know, reaching out to some factories last year. And, you know, you just get some very terse Italian uh, factory owner sending you emails back that are just like, yeah, I were, you know, if you want, if you want to start, start a line here, you know, it's, you know, an initial order of $250,000. And it's like, yeah, okay, I guess that's not going to work. So yeah, to have somebody who's a little bit more open to it, I think is is awesome. Day to day, what's it like to run a shoe factory? What are you doing? What's a normal day? What's an abnormal day? Well, it depends on the day, I guess. Today, I came in at like two o'clock this morning because I was like, I need to get caught up. Wow. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was like chugging coffee before this. I was like, all right, we're going to make this through. We're going to be happy the whole time. <laughs> You're doing great. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> No, we it's been slow since COVID, um, so we don't work full-time. Well, we do. We work 30 hours a week, 6 o'clock in the morning to 12 in the afternoon, which seems to be like the perfect schedule. You get out at 12, you have the whole rest of the day. I'm out there on the production floor with them all day long. Um, I do all the cutting of production um, along with a couple other steps throughout. So you just come in at some ungodly hour of the morning, <laughs> put on- Not every day. Put on some old Pumas- <laughs> and you just start cutting leather and, and mixing it up. It sounds like fun. It is. It is so much fun. Some days it's an absolute nightmare. But I mean, that kind of just comes with the territory. But more often than not, we're all just here having a really good time. I'm like so fortunate to have the employees that I have. They all love to make shoes. Couldn't ask for a better crew or a better place to work slash own. <laughs> That's great. I think it, it comes through in the product. They're doing a very good job. That's obvious. It usually happens when people like what they're doing. Like, what about that abnormal day? What kind of stuff happens in a factory that just throws things sideways that, that maybe we might not think about? Oh, geez. <laughs> uh, machines breaking down, things like that. I don't currently have a maintenance, like a full-time maintenance person. He retired back in September, but I kind of like stepped back and I was like, well, how often does a machine really break? And you know what? You don't really know until you don't have a maintenance person. Immediately after he <laughs> retired, I imagine. So I'm very fortunate. He just lives one town over. So I'll text him. Even if I text him at 630 in the morning, he's like, all right, I'll be there in a couple hours. And I'm like, thank goodness. But it has definitely encouraged me to learn how the machines actually work. <laughs> because before I would have never thought about having to fix a, any of this equipment by myself. But that's usually our biggest holdup is if something breaks down, it kind of puts a bottleneck into everything because the crew is so small. Things will just, you know, gather at those spots. But I mean, sometimes there's like weird things that happen. You know, all of a sudden the shoes don't fit on the last or the sewing machines just didn't stitch in a straight line. And then you have to just, you know, figure that out. <laughs> you know, with the machinery, some listeners definitely know this. I imagine others don't like. A lot of this stuff sometimes necessarily is just old, right? Like there's not new production of these machines. If there is, they're they're very expensive. Do you have shiny new stuff in there? Or like are you using some machines that would maybe be considered even vintage? Uh, we definitely have some old stuff. Not as much as we used to. Right before we started production, um, 
some companies had like come through and bought some of the assets um, from PW Miner. So a lot of the older equipment is gone. We're very fortunate that there's a lot of equipment that was replaced within the last few years or new versions of it were bought. A lot of our stitchers are new, but our inseamer, our British high speed, those are quite old. Um, if something were to happen to them, I don't actually know what we would do. <laughs> um, but I think the oldest machine we ever had in this factory was, gosh, like 90 years old. And it was this heel nailer. Every so often it would just stop working and you'd have to like get in there and like spin the belt by hand just to get it going again. Really encourage it to want to do its job. <laughs> <laughs> and that would do the trick. Yeah, it definitely belonged in a museum, not in a functioning factory. <laughs> got to be some headaches but that stuff is just so cool like our buddy lars uh who makes usmu boots he's always on the hunt and somehow they're like floating around and kind of like fencing them for people too just all this vintage machinery it'll send us pictures and it's like it's beautiful stuff you know don't make it like they used to kind of things yeah keeping it going it's like vintage pinball machines which i'm kind of into like before everything was digital there's like one guy in the tri-state area who can repair these machines. The knowledge base of that is crazy. Like you, you got to keep that guy local. The semi-retired, still on-call machinery repair dude. Yeah, that's how it is with our British high speed, which stitches the soles on. We've got one guy that I've ever known who has to like fly in to fix that machine if something happens to it. He like houses all these parts for it at his home. So you can always call him in case you need something. But I mean, without him, I wouldn't even know where to begin to find a part for a machine that old. Keep him rolling. Back to PW Miner. I feel like there was a lot of different information out there over the last few years. And, you know, it would be great to clear up anything that you can. Like you said, the place was 150 years old. I think a little more than that. One of the oldest shoe factories in the whole U.S., and it closed up shop in 2019, I believe. What happened there? Wouldn't we all like to know? Um, <laughs> 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 yeah, so originally in 2000, I want to say 14, PW Minor was foreclosed on, and my grandfather, Peter Zeliff, he swooped in, bought it, brought it back to life. Ironically, he was like on the brink of retiring. He might have actually been retired when he did that. So he wasn't looking to like hang on to it for too long. He just wanted to, you know, keep it open, keep the jobs around. So in 2018, I want to say February, he sold it to this investment group that came in and they were super sure they were going to be able to keep things going, bring in all these new accounts, but it just wasn't, wasn't on the horizon for them. And in October 2018, it just closed up. I mean, none of us really saw it coming. I remember they just like emailed us one day and they were like, hey, like you got to print these letters and hand them out to everybody because they weren't local. And we printed the letters and it was, you might be losing your job. <laughs> and so it was a surprise to everybody. It was super, super unfortunate. Um, I think there was just too many things going on, too many different ideas going through the factory to really be good at just one of them would have been probably substantial to keeping PW Miner around. And you were there. You were on the floor when when all that happened. Yep. It must have been pretty rough for everybody. Yeah, it was brutal. Um, the day that we closed up shop, they were like, yeah, we're not going to be there. But if you and her name is Christine, um, she was the director of operations. If you and Christine could just let everybody know that everyone's laid off. 
we'd appreciate that. And I was like, okay. And I'm 25 at the time. And I'm like, I don't want to tell all these people who have been here for longer than I've been alive that they're losing their jobs. Like, that sucks. That's not how you want to start a Monday. Like, come on. But you had to go You had to go around and, and do that? Yeah, we all sat in the cafeteria and we had to go through it with everyone um, and just kind of explain as much as we could of what was going on, even though we didn't really have a good idea of what was happening. Yikes. That does not sound like fun. If you asked me what a good time was, I would not say that. Oh, man. Doesn't sound terribly enjoyable. Definitely a blow to the industry, uh, which we want to get into in the second half. Look, let's take a quick break. Maybe we can have a little fun during it. We'll be right back. Hey, you two. You know what time it is? It's actually 2.10 again. It's 2.10 again. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You're not making that up. It is definitely 2.10. This is a scheduled operation here. It's also time for Gen Facts. All right, Nicole, so here's how this works. Jen, who works at Standard & Strange, has once again provided us with three facts, two of which are not actually facts, and one of which is a factual fact, in fact. We'll read all three, and at the end of the episode, we'll have to guess what the true one is. What do you got, Ticho? Gen fact number one. In the early 1990s, Levi's stared down a scandal over its use of sweatshop labor. After deciding to close a sewing factory in San Antonio that employed 1,150 workers and move its operations to Costa Rica in favor of cheaper labor, the company gave their workers six months severance pay, provided new skills training, and paid to relocate some to other Levi's facilities in the USA. Levi's successfully avoided a scandal and were lauded in the press for their commitment to fair employment practices. Wow, this is a little too soon on that one, Jen. <laughs> too soon, Jen. Too soon. Ugh. All right. <laughs> you know, we just get the facts and read them. It's our job. All right, Gen Fact number two. This one is more fun. Braveheart was nearly pulled from theatrical release for a reshoot of key scenes with Robert the Bruce wearing what are clearly machine-made welted boots, a major chronological error given that the Scottish did not have access to that type of footwear until at least 20 years after the events depicted in the movie. Uh, that, that, one might be, that one might be true. Although 20 years, when, was the, when were the events from that movie? It was like the 1600s. I don't know. We'll iffy on that. We'll look into that. We're going to look into that. All right. Gen fact number three. The Nokia Corporation. Nokia? Nokia? Nokia. I always say Nokia. What do you got, Nicole? Nokia. Nokia. Nokia? I don't know. Now they both Yeah, now right. now that we're talking about it, I have no no idea. Uh all right, well, let's just go with whatever I however I pronounce it. Well, I read this sentence. The Nokia Corporation. That sounded good. Famous for its iconic sidekick phone, used in Nelly's 2002 music video Dilemma, was also once known for manufacturing rubber galoshes. Its main model was called the Contio after the Finnish term of endearment for bear that was commonly used in the Middle Ages to avoid the religious taboo against using the true name of the animistic deity Karhu. Nelly did not wear the boots, but occasionally blasphemes Karhu. Dude, what? (laughs) (laughs) This one's weird. All right. 
Guys, I've listened to a lot of episodes, and these are the weirdest. Great song, though. Love that Nellie and Kelly song. Okay. Some quick research proves that Jen either slipped up on the Braveheart one, or I was just given the wrong number by Jen, because Braveheart was uh, in the 13th century. The 13th century or the 1300s? I don't really think it matters. Neither is 20 years from welted footwear. I guess that's fair. But yes, 13th century. Trust me. How did? But like, how could you see that it's machine made? Like in the movie, like who's who's really checking that closely? You know what I mean? Like, like Game of Thrones left like water bottles and Starbucks cups in. Like nobody cares. But somebody did enough to point it out. Some people care. People are weird. People are weird. <laughs> people are definitely weird. <laughs> All right, look, we're gonna figure out this true gen fact at the end of the episode. But now, back to the Nicole cast. And we're back. Yeah, I think those are slightly happier gen facts than um, some of the things that we were discussing. I have a very, very, very positive outlook on what Artisan is doing, doing for American footwear manufacturing, you know, just kind of the foresight to start small, make sure that it works and keep pushing it forward. All these new brands. It's great. And I think that's especially because while there are some stalwarts keeping this flame alive, pretty safe to say that the U.S. shoe manufacturing industry has been in a period of unfortunate decline for the past couple decades. So, you know, from your position, not just about Artisan and, you know, maybe a little wider, like what, what's your take on where it's at today? Like what's your long-term outlook for this whole thing? For shoe manufacturing in the States? Yeah. I mean, I would hope to see it grow to what it was, you know, way back. Honestly, I love talking to some of the people that used to work at PW Minor years and years ago because they'll talk about when they were doing like 1,200 pair a day here. And it's like, geez, like, why can't we? But I mean, it, I mean, it makes sense. It's just so much cheaper to do it somewhere else. Seeing what you've seen at Artisan, how does it work? Parkhurst is making it work. Wolverine, you know, they're not making everything here, but they're making the thousand mile stuff in the U.S. What's the formula to continue to push this thing forward? I think a lot of it just has to do with the price point, which you can sell your shoes. I mean, there's all these brands that, you know, are successful selling them at four or five, six hundred dollars or more. But that's not really feasible for a lot of people, especially now where people, you know, haven't had jobs for the last year or so. Just trying to keep your price point down. And I think that there is this gravitational pull to having something that's made in the States considering the last year that we've all gone through. I think it makes it just a little bit extra special to be able to say that you're supporting an American, American-made business. I'm sure it's some people's loan consideration, but definitely not everybody. It kind of can't just be that in some ways. Wish it could in terms of drawing in customers. Everything would be different if people were just set on, you know, supporting the businesses that are happening here. But sometimes it's just easier for companies to make overseas, which is unfortunate. I think it'll turn around. I do. I feel like very inspired by the amount of people that I've talked to over the last few months who are looking to, you know, bring manufacturing here or start their own brands because it could be anything that they want at any price and could draw anyone in. I think it's going to be good. You know, I really see so much opportunity for U.S. manufacturing to make a comeback. There's certainly, as you said, a lot of uncertainty right now in kind of the general economy where, yeah, there's just a ton of people who can't afford, you know, four or $500 pairs of shoes, pairs of boots. But I feel like 
there's plenty of people who have been for many years just not really thinking about their their shoes and where they come from and the materials that go into them and the people who make them. And they just kind of accept that, yeah, I'm going to go to DSW once or twice a year and get something that's going to fall apart, then I'm just going to go replace it. I think there's more and more people becoming educated about this, figuring this out, kind of becoming aware that if you buy nicer, higher quality shoes, they're going to last longer. They're going to be more comfortable. They're going to look better. They're going to be more enjoyable to wear, more enjoyable to own. And I think going along with that, people are thinking about where their shoes come from and who's making them. People know that Big companies like Nike and Adidas are, you know, they're using sweatshop, you know, maybe in some instances using very, very uh, unethical labor practices. And so much of that is is mitigated and just taken out of the equation by buying something that's made in the US, buying something that's made a couple hours away from you, where instead of being shipped all around the world, you know, releasing a lot of uh, CO2 and, you know, other emissions, it's just like USPS brings it from from Batavia, you know what I mean? I could totally see it continuing to make a comeback. And, you know, the fact that you're telling me that all sorts of people are reaching out, trying to start brands, trying to, you know, get in the mix, that, that fills me with a lot of hope. So, yeah, cool. I'm in. <laughs> Everybody call Nicole. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, do it. Nicole, this is one that maybe you think about all the time. Maybe you never think about at all. In terms of ownership, I think that shoemaking is without question a male-dominated industry. I mean, as far as people I know, I think it's you and Hillary Freeman from Edward Green who are running a shoemaking business, like at least the kind of shoes that we care about. Like, what's it like being a woman in this business? And, and is that something that, you know, you think about and do you encounter kind of anything that comes with that? So it's actually something I think about a lot, especially when I first started Artisan. I was 25, super naive, didn't really have any idea of how to run a business. I was reaching out to all these people, be it suppliers or customers um, who were all male-dominated companies that just had like an extra foot or were a step ahead of me. Like they knew what they could say that I wouldn't like totally understand. But I do think that it's been a little bit harder being a female in a manufacturing field, mostly because there's no one to talk to about it. Guys can just be like, oh yeah, today, you know, I was making this pair of shoes and and I try to talk to like a girl and they're like, yeah, like I got my nails done today. And I was like, yeah, I can't paint my nails because it comes off with the acetone. Like, <laughs> there's no point. <laughs> it's been really cool to kind of get to break that barrier a bit. I'm very fortunate to have a lot of support and a lot of people who are able to kind of guide me through if I start to second guess what I'm saying. Or a lot of times I'm like, I need you to read this email. Am I being too emotional? I don't want to come off as too emotional because I'm a female. I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm a crazy person. And that's something that you have to like second guess too is a lot of times a woman can say something one way and a man can say it the same way. And it's taken two different ways. Yeah. It's definitely something that I struggled with in the very beginning. Um, I felt like I was like being taken advantage of a lot. Now I kind of, two and a half years later, I'm finally starting to like find my footing in it all and really like own my voice in everything that I'm doing, which is really empowering, really exciting. I love that. It's great to hear. And I, I think it's really cool that, you know, you're diving in there problems and all or taking it head on. And, you know, I think it's like interesting change and, you know, completely different perspective on things. 
So glad you're doing it. Really am. Yeah. And I mean, it has been interesting that I haven't had one one woman reach out to me about wanting to start a shoe brand, which I was really hoping for. I didn't want to have to be the one to do it, to bring a woman's shoe line into this factory, which was my my whole thing when it was PW Enters. Like, I was going to have my own shoe brand someday. They were going to be making my shoes here. Still aspirational on that one. But if there's any ladies out there that want to start it before I have to, please, by all means. What was like your kind of elevator pitch for what your, your brand was going to be or will be, I guess? <laughs> Definitely not eat it over the sink. Um. <laughs> <laughs> that one's taken. That, that tagline's taken. I'll, I can come up with another one for you, though. Don't worry. <laughs> well, I heard I can't. I can't afford you. You said you were expensive, so I'll have to think of my own. <laughs> I mean, just drive over to Oliver's, get some candy, send it my way. We're cool. <laughs> I mean, what I really wanted to see as a woman's line is something that is. Dressy, but not too dressy, but also very comfortable, like a sneaker that you can wear with literally anything, um, which is something we've kind of been working on. But with everybody else that we're developing for, you know, my projects get kind of kicked to the the back burner for the time being. But I would love to be making a woman's shoe in here. I don't. I have one one pair of shoes that we made here, and they're a men's shoe that just happened to get made on a very small ass, and then they got messed up in production. <laughs> so it would be nice to make something a bit more stylish. Do you feel like there is like a pretty large market for Goodyear welted women's shoes? Or is that just, you know, something women just don't care about as much? I mean... I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> I feel like you guys would know before I do. I mean, yeah, I could tell you just from my own experience with like trying to find stuff for my wife where, you know, she's just like, I'm like, oh, look at these like Carminas. They're like, you know, $450. They're so beautiful. And she's like, yeah, they're too nice. Like, I don't want to wear that. They're they're like fancy, you know. I feel like, yeah, women's Goodyear welted stuff is either just, it's just men's styles that are like built on, you know, narrow lasts or it's like a men's style with like a high heel. Yep. And you're like, why did you just append that? to like a you know red wing mock toe like <laughs> why did you just put a high heel on that it didn't it didn't solve anything and no one's looking for that <laughs> yeah i think there's definitely some kind of market for just like a, a nicely priced casual lace-up boot i think maybe you you could discuss what women are looking for because i only know, <laughs> i only really know what my wife is looking for yeah and it's tough because i live in sneakers um when i'm not here i'm working on our farm so i'm in boots there like mucks so i'm never really in any nice dress shoes but it would i mean it would be nice i don't think that there is a huge market of women's goodyear welted shoes that they could choose from anyway whether they be you know a little more laid back in how they look or at a better price point so it's interesting connor from thursday boots once told me that he was really hyped to do a woman's goodyear welt line i think this was you know three or four years ago and they did all the sampling and, you know, had a bunch of test pairs out there and had this panel of women. Every one of them was like, these boots are too heavy. They take too long to break in. I'm not really feeling this comfort that you're promising because I'm not used to it. Can't you just make it lighter? And they got some blowback for creating a, a cemented women's line. But their test panel said that that's what they wanted. They've now brought in women's Goodyear Welt stuff. My wife actually just got a pair and like they're pretty nice and they're they're very cool honestly yeah they do have a very cool women's line really impressive stuff but it took a long time to get there and i think if connor himself 
wasn't the one saying, no, I, I think that we can get women to appreciate this, even if it's going to take a ton of work, that it just wouldn't have happened. Definitely women out there who love their Red Wings. You know, there's a couple women in the Stitch Down Premium Discord that have flame pandas and everything else under the sun. It's just, it's definitely a niche at this point. But yeah, I think, Patrick, your point is right. Just like porting over these men's designs. I mean, Carmina kind of does that, but man, they do such a good job with classic dress patterns for women. Like, they are beautiful. And that's kind of the list. Yeah, that's pretty fair. I mean, yeah, my wife ended up with just the cemented Thursdays and she, you know, she enjoys them. I look at them and I'm like, it would be better if they were good, you're welted. They look otherwise look nice. I'd love to see a brand like that pop up. And yeah, it sounds like you already are, are cooking on it. So that's cool. All right, Nicole. So we've kind of vacillated quite fluidly, I would say, between some pretty serious topics and some more fun ones. But let's go have a little fun. To close this sucker out, we're going to do a little speed round. Ticho, what do you got for her? All right. What is the most interesting thing that you've learned about making shoes? It's hard. <laughs> Truly, like that is, I came in here thinking that how how hard can making a shoe be? It's just a shoe. It's not a rocket ship. But there's so many different steps uh, and processes through the whole thing. It's like almost 200 steps, which just seems impossible. That's definitely my biggest takeaway, how much work goes into each pair. How does any shoe ever get made without <laughs> getting completely mangled? How? How? It seems impossible. And then, you know, you contrast that with where, you know, we're often consulted by people who, you know, will receive shoes and they'll be like, hey, is this, you know, are these factory seconds? Or is this a, a is this a, you know, a, a defect or whatever? And you're like, do, you don't even know, man. Like, you don't even know how hard it was for these people to make this shoe. Just appreciate it, you know? Yeah. And it's tough because people don't understand, like, these are made by hand. I mean, we use equipment, like, they're not hand-lasted or anything like that, but there is a person behind every single step. So not every shoe is going to look exactly the same, and there's going to be, like, little things here and there that are just a little bit off from what maybe you were expecting, but that's, like, part of the process. That's part of the cool thing of having a shoe that's, you know, made the way these are. They're all one of a kind, for sure. Yeah, I think when you kind of change your perspective and instead of demonizing any kind of ding or defect or whatever you want to call it and just, you know, kind of try to appreciate it and say, no, this is a handmade product. And, you know, there, I know there's some people who just don't want to hear that and are like, mm -hmm. well, it costs $400, so it needs <laughs> to be perfect. And it's like, yeah, that's that's not what this is. Like somebody made this on a bunch of machines that were like really close to just tearing all their fingers off. <laughs> and they managed to do it without tearing off their fingers or really getting a stitch out of place. You, it's really pretty impressive when you when you, you actually watch them do it. I don't, I don't know if you corrupted this next question or not, but I guess we can get more specific. What's the hardest part about making shoes and running a shoe factory? <laughs> Even though the most interesting part was it's hard. Oh, that's also the answer to this one. Um, the hardest part, yikes, probably consistency because everything is done by hand. Um, we get a lot of feedback from our customers that maybe there was a little bit of difference in the height of the shoes or how far, you know, the blucher points were on each pair. So just maintaining that consistency between each half pair to make them a pair, but then also as an order, it's tough. Sorry, did you pronounce that blucher or blucher? So ironically, I did listen to that episode just the other day when you were talking to... 
Who was that? Oh, Lars. Yeah. Yes. And he did comment on how you pronounce the word blucher. And did you ever get any feedback on, you thought it was from a different language, right? Everybody's saying blucher. Yes. And I'm saying blucher because it was named after a German guy, like Baron von Blucher or whatever. So why are we changing it? In all fairness, I've ever only ever talked to Americans about it, so I'm biased. You could be you could be correct. Uh, but I'm not gonna confirm <laughs> that. I think <laughs> we're all pretty sure that we just got the definitive answer. Coming up naturally in conversation, not even put on the spot. <laughs> Nicole Porter has decided it. Thank you, Nicole. This is an important interview. <laughs> I'll I'll ne- I'll never change how I pronounce it now. I'm, I'm locked into Blucher, and the ger- and the Germans are behind me. So, aside from debating shoe name pronunciations on podcasts, what's the most fun part about running a shoe factory? Ooh, seeing the finished product. I guess it's a tie. When things are going out of the factory and you get to see everything come together, um, there's no better feeling than when you're walking through the packing room and whoever's working in there that day is like, oh my gosh, these shoes look amazing. And I'm like, yeah, tell me about it. You guys rock. Uh, (laughs) But also the product development part is very exciting. Getting to see the new ideas that people are coming through with and what they want to bring to the market. What is your favorite pair that you have worked on? Uh, in like your role as like a product developer? That's tough. I will say we did this when we first started, we did this boot that this is probably my favorite, but it's also because it's for a good cause. It was with Wolverine and they collaborated with this company. I think they're out of Pennsylvania called Sword and Plow. And they specialize in making different items out of swords and plows. Military. Yeah. Swords and plows. Yes. (laughs) And that's exactly what they make is only swords and plows. So it was amazing that they worked with Wolverine. They turned them into a shoe. <laughs> we melted them down and we cobbled them into a shoe. But they make a lot of things out of like military tents and just different military items. So Wolverine had done a collaboration with them where they made a boot that featured military tent into the material. And then all of the proceeds went to a foundation that supported soldiers coming back from being in the military or being deployed or families of soldiers who lost their lives in active duty. So that was probably my favorite. It was a cool looking boot and it was a really great cause. I just found one on eBay and they look really cool. So this green material is actually like a a military tent. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Yeah. They came to us like all cut up so it laid flat but i mean like the buttons and the snaps and all that from the tent are still on them so we had to like cut around it oh that's super cool yeah i found them too 175 size 8d somebody get in there (laughs) how big is your personal shoe and boot collection and what kind of stuff do you like wearing you kind of tease this a little bit but maybe there's something more Oh, I feel like I ruined all your guys' questions before we got to them. <laughs> <laughs> Sign of a great interview. I don't have a huge collection, but if you ask my mother, I have too many pairs of sneakers. <laughs> my brother's favorite thing when I go to their house is, is that a new pair of sneakers? I'm telling mom. <laughs> she loves to patrol my sneaker collection. <laughs> and none of them are like, they're not like Jordans or anything that are like fancy like launches. They're just... 
I just like to wear sneakers. So that's what most of my shoes are. And basically every sneaker has a location that it belongs to. So I have my factory sneakers. I have my farm sneakers. I have my running sneakers. So they all have a job. They have a purpose. I needed to buy them. You can't convince me otherwise. I needed them. Yeah. uh, My collection is the same way, Nicole. So I totally understand. (laughs) This whole whole game is all about (laughs) self-justification and mom justification, I guess. How many are we really are we really talking? Are we talking dozens or we're we talking Um, I have them spread across well the ones that don't have specific locations that they belong to because like my factory sneakers they stay here. I wear different sneakers here and then I switch over so my other sneakers don't get ruined. Mr. Rogers style? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do you take off a blazer and put on a cardigan too? Yes. <laughs> Gotta get comfy. <laughs> it's the perfect factory attire. <laughs> Probably a dozen pair of sneakers and just like a handful of boots. Your mom would not enjoy being my mom if she has a problem <laughs> with 12, 12 sneakers. Right? It's not that bad. You're it's doing not fine. that bad. Yeah. Tell her it could be a lot worse. Tell her it could be like <laughs> way worse. I'll send her your way if she wants. next time she wants to come at me about something. Yeah. you Refer her to me. I got, I got you. I got your back. He's very practiced. all right so last one we ask everybody this when they come on and usually we say you know you get a like a pair of shoes to wear to weddings or and a pair of sneakers to wear to the gym and that's all you get except for one pair from your current collection that you get to keep for you you get to keep the factory shoes and one other what's it gonna be Oh, well, since we're going into summer, that changes Forever, things. Nicole, forever. This is the only shoe you get forever. forever. Oh, man. But I live in Western New York. I can't just have one pair. <laughs> doesn't work like that here. I'm going to say regardless of the snow, I'm going to say I have this pair of Birkenstocks that I have had for probably six years, and they're my favorite pair of shoes to wear. They're the most comfortable thing. I obviously cannot wear them in the winter or at the factory, but I have my factory sneakers, so that doesn't matter. But probably those sandals. Burks are a good call. Uh, I should say that more positively. Burks are a good call. Um, <laughs> you sound disappointed in my choice. <laughs> no, I, I haven't owned a pair since high school, and I kind of wish I did. And what about boots? We'll give you a pair of boots because you're up there in the snow. Boots, 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 boots. Um, I mean, I don't have a large boot collection so it's hard to say i don't even know if i can make something up for you guys sounds like you do wear your birkenstocks in the snow (laughs) (laughs) it sounds like it maybe is a hypothetical future boot that maybe you develop right yes yes there we go love it can't wait to see it nicole this has been great but before we get out of here there's something that we got to do called reveal the true gen fact to refresh Gen fact number one, Levi's does right by its workers. Go Levi's. Gen fact number two, Robert the Bruce wore historically inaccurate Goodyear welted boots. Mel Gibson doesn't care. Gen fact number three, one-time cell phone giant Nokia, Nokia, Blucher, made rain boots. Nelly resists their lore. What do we think this one is? One true fact. You know, the Levi's one, it does sound like pretty plausible to me, right? They would probably do that and then... I don't know if they would actually care to even make it right. It's the early 90s is what we're talking about. So I don't know. The Braveheart one, Mel Gibson. I don't know. I don't know about Mel Gibson. What I do know about Mel Gibson, great hair, great mullet, uh, an inspiration to me in that regard only. Uh, (laughs) Thank you for making that clear. 
Number three, Nokia Corporation. I know that they make these boots. They really do make like rubber rain boots. All the other stuff with Nelly might just be a misdirect. So I'm going to go with the true fact being gen fact number three. Nokia Corporation makes the sidekick phone and rubber galoshes. In fact, our friend uh, Ron Ryder used to sell these. So that's how I know about them. Oh, really? Yeah. Nicole, would you like to present a different choice? I mean, the Nokia one does seem like the best option, but I think I'm going to go with the Levi's one. I'd like to think that there is a happy ending to every factory closing. <laughs> <laughs> that does track for you. That does track for you. <laughs> well, let's reach into the fact bag. Sounds a lot like your sponge candy bag. <laughs> yeah, it's empty now. I'm pretty hyped up here. So let me tell you what the true fact is. It's the boots, Nokia boots. Yeah. <sighs> Got you again, Jen. You can Google them. They look like rubber boots, but apparently they were quite popular, and that's what they were doing before. Uh, they were making the phones, and I, I think they're trying to transition back to it uh, now that that little particular brick phone is not exactly in abundance. I mean, look, if they can make a phone that is that indestructible, I have no doubt that they can make a good boot. Good on you, Nokia. And also maybe, you know, maybe get into some U.S.-based manufacturing as well. I have so I have a phone number that you can call, and she's accepting any <laughs> anyone who wants to make boots. Absolutely anybody. <laughs> the Levi's fact, the truth of it, unfortunately. Oh, don't do it. Don't tell me it was bad <laughs> oh, <no>. news. <laughs> is that they laid off about 1,200 people like overnight, and that was it. Well, damn. And it did not go well in the press for them. <sighs> Yeah, because they probably made somebody like Nicole go fire everybody while <laughs> while they're you know cozy in their their office in you know San Francisco wherever they're based. Not the happiest tale, but we're happy to sacrifice the Levi's advertising dollars for just you know <laughs> kind of getting the truth out there. Knowledge is power. So again, look, I th I do think we've had some fun here, but there are definitely some realities of this whole kind of scene that. Are unfortunate, Nicole, you know, to see you having gone through that and then come out the other side and say, like, no, we're going to do this. I love it. It's completely inspiring. And just thank you for it. Seriously. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you guys for giving me the opportunity to come on here and talk with you. It was so much fun. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Before we get out of here, we do have to say thanks to Jen and Standard and Strange for sponsoring this episode. And the very same to all the Stitch Down Premium community members whose support helps keep this podcast going. If you're interested in SDP's rollicking, insanely helpful Discord chat, 10% off Grandstone, Sagara, and Artisan Zone Parkhurst, giveaways and plenty more, stop by stitchdown.com for all the details. But seriously, Nicole, you're the main one to thank. We had a great time and learned a ton and just wish you all the best with Artisan. Go get it done. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. That's it for this week. Take care of your shoes. We'll see you next time. <laughs> 